I'm Brooke Gurley, and you are listening to Untold Stories, the cases that shaped the civil rights movement, presented by Law and Crime. This podcast is the audio adaptation of my video series titled The Untold Stories of the Civil Rights Movement. And now, on to this week's episode. What's up, everyone? It's me, Brooke. Thank you so much for coming back to my page and for joining me for part five of the Untold series, which is What's crazy is that we're on part five and we still have not made it to the 20th century. But anyway, this is the untold stories of the civil rights movement where each week I look at what I think are important cases. I talk about them and I tell you why I think they're important. Awesome, so let's get going. This week we're looking at the civil rights, what's known as collectively the civil rights cases in 1883 where you have five cases that make their way up to the United States Supreme Court. It's similar to what we saw with the Brown case, Brown versus the Board of Education, where there you also had a bunch of cases that made their way up to the United States Supreme Court but is known as one case. So let's get started with the facts of the case. What are the facts of the case? Well, I mean, you can go as far back as slavery because it's all kind of grouped in here, but This case deals with the Civil Rights Act of 1875. That's right, boys and girls. The first civil rights law was not passed in 1964. It wasn't even passed in 1875. It was actually passed in 1866. That's still good law. But then there was a second Civil Rights Act that was passed in 1875. And that law took about five years to get passed. Um, The Senator Charles Sumner from Massachusetts, of course, you know, civil rights advocate, he was trying to get it passed since 1870, and it took even beyond him dying. They finally got it passed in 1875, and it gave um, all people, particularly, obviously, former slaves, black people, the right to not only just vote and do all these things that they got because of the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendment, but to ensure that they couldn't be denied certain accommodations, public accommodations, and the idea being these are public accommodations, but they're privately held, they're privately held, but they're public accommodations, so, you know, we want to ensure that people actually have the right to enjoy um, all the amenities of being an American citizen. So, it's passed in 1875, and what happens is you have these plaintiffs in the civil rights cases who are denied entry into public theaters. And what's funny is like, what's ironic about this one case in particular, in Tennessee involved um, a black man who could not get into a theater, I think it was the McGuire Theater, to see the Tennessee Jubilee Singers. Now, they call themselves the original or authentic Jubilee Singer, or yeah, Jubilee Singers, but they were obviously a knockoff of the world famous Fist Jubilee Singers. So this black man is trying to get in to see black singers, but is denied entry. He sues, like I said, it's five cases. They sue and they take it all the way up to the United States Supreme Court. Those are the facts. So what's the issue? The issue presented here is, does this Civil Rights Act of 1875, is it unconstitutional? Does it violate the 10th Amendment, which left all rights reserved to the states that weren't explicitly given to the Congress and the Constitution? And so the court ruled, surprise, surprise, yes. Now the reasoning that the Um, plaintiffs in this case put forth at least two arguments in saying that Congress had the right to pass this law. Also a little backup, just a little con law um, lesson here. I remember my con law professor saying that um, whenever a a law is challenged on whether or not it's constitutional, you can look at two broad questions. One, does Congress have the explicit power to pass this law? And then two, is there a prohibition against this specific law? So here we're looking at that first question. Does Congress actually have the right to pass this Civil Rights Act of 1875, which prevented 
private citizens from discriminating against other private citizens. What the court found there is that while the 14th Amendment prevents states from discriminating against citizens, it does not allow Congress or gives Congress the power to prevent other private citizens from discriminating against other private citizens. They're powerless to do that, at least back then. Of course, you're probably thinking, well, what about what's going on now with the Civil Rights Act? We'll get to that. We'll get to that. But here in 1883, the court's saying Congress has no power to stop individual discrimination. So they immediately outrule that as a possibility. Then the court looked at the 13th Amendment and had to decide whether or not under the 13th Amendment, Congress had the power to address the issue of individual discrimination because it was a badge and incident of slavery, the language of badge and incident of slavery. What the court ruled there in saying that no, Congress does not have the power under the 13th Amendment to pass this as a badge and incident of slavery because discrimination has nothing to do with slavery. As a matter of fact, it, they said for instance, if during the time of slavery, you had some lodge that said we do not allow Africans to come in because they're trying to prevent people from escaping slavery. That has nothing to do with slavery. What? Yes, it does. If you're preventing people from being free, then you are a part of the system of slavery and therefore it is about slavery and about oppression. But yes, yeah, so the court says no, slavery is not a matter of slavery and discrimination or refusing to let people lodge at your place, enjoy your theaters, eat at your restaurants has nothing to do with slavery. This is completely separate. It's not about bondage. And then the court makes a statement that I feel is very reminiscent to what you hear today when we talk about anti-discrimination laws. Now again, this is 18 years after slavery. So this is a, a court that's speaking to people who were actually slaves, who are former slaves, and this is what the court says to them. It would be running the slavery argument into the ground to make it apply to every act of discrimination which a person may see fit to make as to the guests he will entertain or as to the people he will take into his coach or cab. And then here's the quote that is particularly, I think, egregious, what the court says. When a man has emerged from slavery and by the aid of beneficent legislation has shaken off the inseparable concomitants of that state, there must be some stage in the progress of his elevation when he takes the rank of a mere citizen and ceases to be the special favorites of the law. And when his rights as a citizen or a man has to be protected in the ordinary modes by which other men's rights are protected. So what is the court saying in this particular quote? Well, what it's saying is that, look, y'all been getting enough, all of this beneficent legislation, these racial preferences, y'all need to eventually get to the point where you're like everybody else and you don't need any help. Stop trying to blame everything on slavery. The court is saying to people who were slaves, stop blaming slavery. Stop blaming slavery for your plight. This ain't got nothing to do with slavery. This is about whatever. It may be own, uh, you know, invidious discrimination, but this has nothing to do with slavery. It's just about what people want. Then the court gets historical. There were thousands of free colored people in this country before the abolition of slavery, enjoying all the essential rights of life, liberty, and property, the same as white citizens. Lies. Yet, not one, yet no one at that time thought it was an invasion of his personal status as a freeman because he was not admitted to all the privileges enjoyed by white citizens. So the court's like, look, you had black people before who weren't slaves and they enjoyed every right that white people had and they never thought it was because of slavery that they may have been discriminated against. And so this brings me to why I think this case is very important, even to this day. One, obviously, the 
court had a willingness to sort of separate state action and private action and saying, well, these two are so nicely distinguishable and so we can't deal with the private action. But it's just, again, when people are, are scheming, then it just gives them another route to be scheming. But I also think this case is very, very, very important because it shows almost immediately how this court was so ready to separate slavery from discrimination, the history, to remove it from the context of slavery and to say discrimination is something different and slavery is something different. And they're saying this to slaves, telling the slaves, look, you have had enough beneficent legislation. You don't need any more legislation. Just get it together. Pull yourself up by your bootstraps and stop looking for the court and stop blaming everything on slavery. And I think the fact that the court was so willing and so ready to distinguish or remove discrimination from this historical context within this grand system of slavery that was developed over hundreds of years, but only 18 years out, they wanted to act like racial discrimination is not a badge and incident or related to slavery, it has nothing to do with slavery. Um, I think that speaks to why we still have a problem today when we're trying to address the issue of race because we don't want to put it into its proper historical context. We never have. We want to be over slavery as soon as it was over and act like a hundred years of, of a system being built is all magically gone. It's something different. Discrimination is something different. And if you're not willing to really deal with the whole history of discrimination, Really, you're not gonna ever cure it because what you're doing is just addressing symptoms of a problem and not the problem itself. It's like putting a Band-Aid over a bullet wound. Like, you're not gonna live <laughs> very long this way. You can't do it. In the meantime, if you would like to know more about this, of course, you know I got some resources for you. Of course, I had to do it again. Black trials, get it, love it, live it. It will bless your life. <laughs> and then, also another new book I'm introducing, Inherently Unequaled, which deals with this period of reconstruction and civil rights laws. And it has the civil rights cases mentioned there as well as Plessy versus Ferguson, which we'll talk about. If you like this video, please be sure to hit the like button below. I would really appreciate it. Please be sure to share this video as well. Um, if you're on YouTube, subscribe to the page so you never miss a video. Also, um, if you're not following me on Facebook or Instagram, please be sure to follow me, follow me there. I'm on TikTok. I might start doing like these one minute civil rights updates. I don't know. We'll see. Also, please be sure to subscribe to my blog, PalookiesWorld.com. That way you'll never miss an article and or a video. Thank you so much for watching. Take care and God bless. See you next week. This week's episode was produced and narrated by me. Special thanks to Brian Gurley for the use of his music and for mixing the audio. To watch the video series that inspired this podcast, head over to my blog, palookiesworld.com, and make sure you subscribe. For more information on this series, like how do you spell Palooki, please check out the show notes. Finally, please be sure to subscribe to this podcast so that you never miss an episode.